It is my sense this morning that what is needed is a fresh vision of great are you, Lord. I know we sing it. I know we read it. But I, I, I sense in my heart we fail to really capture what that means. Let me tell you, we're going to go the next three weeks and then into the fall. These next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about generosity and how that reflects as one of our core values is being followers of Jesus. And then in September, we're going to start a series in 1 Peter. And we're going to go through the book. And one of my main reasons for doing this is because Peter writes to a church in the midst of suffering and persecution. And when you look at what's happening around the world, the escalation and hostility towards Christian in other countries, and even here in our country, is increasing exponentially. Now, in other countries, they're being beheaded. It's a common occurrence. We think we have it rough here? <laughs> here, it has to do with just some, some moral stances. But as a church, we need to understand what it means to be Christ when everything around us is bringing the pressure and the pain and the persecution. And we need to capture a vision of great are you, Lord. Amen? I want to talk about the spiritual discipline enough, and I want to start with a question. Why is money such a controversial subject? Now, I get it out there in a non-kingdom setting. And the fact, when we talk about the spiritual discipline enough or generous giving, this whole series, your mind automatically went to money. And it's so much more than that. We're going to get into that. But we have to ask the question, why is money such a controversial subject in the church? I mean, let's face it, people really get weird. I've seen people leave churches angry because they say, I don't like how you spend God's money. Now, I want to say, give me your checkbook. No, 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 that's, that's my money. No, it's all God's money. I've seen families fight and never speak to each other over money. I've seen wills doctored and altered. I've seen some families so fighting over the estate that the lawyers ended up getting everything because they fought that long. I've heard a lot of interesting rationale for people who don't give. They always have a good reason in their mind. I've seen some people use debt as a faith exercise. They buy something, they have no idea how they're going to pay for it and say, God will show up. I have the faith. I've seen people get upset over church buildings saying we should not build or keep things in repair and go out and spend $50,000 changing the scenery in their house. I've watched marriages ruined by it. I've watched businesses destroyed by it. I've watched preachers evoke the name of God and manipulate vulnerable people out of large amounts of money. And you know there's a story here. I'm not going to tell it, but it was $600,000. Plus, the pastor had this woman end their marriage as well. Now, I have to tell you, I've seen extreme generosity as well. Sad part is there's fewer stories. I know some businesses that operate more like a church than the church does when it comes to their money. I've known some people who you would never guess 
live a lavish lifestyle of generosity because of their love for Christ and the church. So I want to do a three-week series. And when we think about money in this, I want you to broaden the aspect. And my goal in this series is to raise the bar on this whole concept of generosity. And if you think it's only money, get your mind away from that. I think money is a reason or an indicator of whether or not we're really generous. And the reason we get so weird about it is because it's an idol. And when we allow idols into our lives, it distorts our heart that we say is all for Jesus. Giving is so much more than just money and stuff. But it's one of the core values that Bev and I try to live by. It's my desire that it's a core value that drives GBC. And some of you might be saying, but wait, wait, why are you pushing your values on GBC? Well, it's a core value of God, isn't it? He lavished his love by giving us his son. Talk about extreme generosity. And as Christians, we're to be like Jesus. And it's more than a what would Jesus do campaign. What we have to understand is what is his heart. And allow his spirit to invade us to our very core being. And like this last song we sang, then it's his breath that we breathe. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Many of you know the context here, and Jesus is talking about going away. The disciples are upset, saying, wait a minute, you know, you didn't overthrow Rome yet. And they're thinking about a physical kingdom. They're not thinking about something far beyond just their time and space, something that would last for thousands and thousands and thousands of years until he came again. They were just thinking about their immediate situation. And aren't we like that? And so they're having this conversation. And in John 14, verse 7, we have this dialogue with Philip. Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now I have a question to ask you when you look at this dialogue. Obviously, Peter did not know what he possessed. Do we know what we possess? Is Christ enough? Now, if this is true, and it is, why are we locked in our little worlds where we view everything from our perspective? Where we think people should think like us, and we think people should act like us, and we use phrases like this, well, I deserve, and I'm entitled. And we toss around words like fair and justice. Well, I got news for you. Grace isn't fair. Now, let me talk about my premise this morning. You can write this down. If Christ is enough, my premise is that we would be living very differently than we do today. If Christ is enough, we would be living very differently 
Now look at verse 12. Just scroll down there and listen to what Jesus tells Philip and the disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever he puts that truly, truly, it's a point of emphasis. It's like what I'm about to tell you is really true. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I mean, you can go down through an impressive list, can't you? From miracles to walking on water to healing, and you start saying, wow, you mean I get to do those things? But then he adds this phrase, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, when you read this, what do you think about? Do you think about the possibilities that you could engage in? I mean, if he says we can do greater works, what are those? Well, there's only one greater work that we can do since he's gone to the Heavenly Father. And what's that? We can lead someone to Christ. That's the transformation of the human heart and mind. That's a greater work. I mean, you could heal all the people in the world. You could feed all the people in the world. You could have everybody walking on water. They wouldn't need boats. But it would not change the human heart. Do we understand how great God is in allowing us the privilege of literally entering into the transformation of the human heart? What do you ask God for? What do you ask God for for GBC? I mean, is it just kind of Let's make sure the offerings are there and we fill the pews. I mean, there's so much more, isn't there? What do you believe God desires for this church? Is it built upon human possibility and effort, saying, well, if we would do this then? Or is it divine reality of Christ? And if it's Christ, and if he's enough, things are going to get pretty crazy, aren't they? I mean, look at the interaction in the New Testament with the disciples. Every time they thought he was going to do something, he did what? It was way beyond anything they could imagine or possibly think. Verse 13, same chapter. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Now, you note the condition there, ask in my name, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, what you're going to ask for has to be consistent with the core value. One of my core values is it has to glorify God. So this is just not a verse that says, hey, listen, I can go ask for a new car and get it because that's what I want. No, it's we're asking according to his name, according to the glory of God. It's what God wants. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I want you to take time to examine your life. I want you to think about what you can do. And then I think about what God will do through his son and his spirit if you allow him to be enough. Is it all about you? Is it all about your wants and your desires and your comforts, your preferences? Or is it about the transformation of lives which you cannot do? Only he can. I mean, we already know what God desires for this world and it's redemption. It's for people to enter into a relationship with his son so that they can spend all eternity with him. That's his desire. And we should be asking consistent with his desire. Amen? I mean, take time to examine GBC. 
policies and programs? Or have you asked yourself, what would all this look like if Christ was our true north? And if we allowed his Holy Spirit to lead us. And may I say that we should always adapt to where God leads us rather than ask him to adapt to our version of church. (laughs) Can I say that? Now this all has to begin with this spiritual discipline of Christ is enough. I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter 4. I read this a few weeks ago. I'm going to read it again. Because so many times we quote the one verse and we forget the condition. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 11. Paul writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Then here's the verse we often quote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we quote the verse, we forget the condition. What's the condition? It's the spiritual discipline of enough. It's contentment. So here's your first lesson this morning. The state of your spiritual life is a result of your own choices. Now, Paul says in this verse and other places, Situations do not dictate my choices. Christ dictates my choices. Note in this passage, he says, I have learned. He says, I'm being taught the secret of. I'm in training to see Christ. He's my strength. He's my perspective. He's my hope. And Paul is telling us it doesn't matter what they throw at us. We have Christ. End of statement. Now, if you don't believe him, and some people didn't, Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Being in verse 24, just listen to these words, and you can see them on the screen. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. There's a whole legal thing about that we're not going to get into this morning. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Now, you know what Paul didn't say there. God, what are you doing to me? Or God, what are you trying to teach me? Because, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to go. I think one of the greatest errors of our day is that we don't have a clear vision of who Christ really is. And because of that, our situations and circumstances dictate our theology. Rather than our theology, theology is a fancy word for how we think about God, okay? Our theology dictating our circumstances. J.I. Packer wrote a book back in the 80s. For some of you, you weren't even here in the 80s. (laughs) It was called Hot Tub Religion. Here's what he says. For this is what we've done. We refuse to believe that one should live for something more than this present life. We've treated this world as if it were the only hope we shall ever possess. 
and have concentrated exclusively on arranging it for our comfort. I mean, think about everything you see in the news today. It fits that, doesn't it? It's the human possibilities trying to find a solution to our situation in our world. Some theologians call this the domestication of Christ. Some others call it designer religion, where we kind of pick and choose and we make it into our own image. But what we're doing so often is we reduce Christ to a set of human possibilities, preferences, and expectations, and then we take this and we make it say what we want it to say. We forget that when we lose our true north, Christ, we lose our way. John Stott wrote a book called The Incomparable Christ. It was early 2000s. And here's what he says. Paul never forgets Christ. And he keeps returning to Christ. And he keeps returning to him over and over again. We must never forget Christ. And we've got to keep returning. Not the Christ of our making, and this is where we need confession, isn't it? We have treated church more like a religious supermarket. And we've manipulated scripture to suit our lifestyles. And we have become what many people call biblically illiterate. We do not know anymore what this says. We can quote some of the verses, but we don't know what they say. We have to learn to deny ourselves, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be single-minded. And only then can we live. Christ is enough. Francis Schaeffer, back in the 70s, asked a critical question, wrote a whole series about it called, How Should We Then Live? And here's what he said. I believe people are as they think. The choices we make in the next decade will mold irrevocably the direction of our culture and the lives of our children. That was written in 1976. Think about those choices. Think about, and I'm not making a statement about this, but just let me make this observation. Think about the moral outrage over Cecil the Lion and how nothing is being said in the media about the Planned Parenthood videos and the selling of baby parts. What choices have we made since 1976 that allows that condition to exist today? You know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. People don't want to know the truth. They want to know their version of the truth because it fits their whole ideology. We've got to know Christ, and we've got to act Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. You can turn there. Paul writes to Timothy, and Timothy and Paul had kind of like a mentor-mentor-e relationship. He writes, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. 
Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now you catch that phrase and you catch and, and you understand that if we don't have contentment with godliness, what happens? Well, this list of things here. And when you look at the condition of many churches and, and how they're arguing and fighting and suspicious and what's the missing element? He goes on to say, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Here's the second lesson. We must confess that we have enough. Now, this is what we call positive confession. So often we think about confession of uh, confessing sins and those kinds of things. No, this is confessing that great are you, Lord. It's confessing the holiness of God. It is confessing that he is enough. And it's just not words. Confession includes action. In our long list of sins that we often use to judge each other, one that we often leave out is the sin of discontent. We even convince ourselves that we cannot be content until we get what we think we want. And so we trade in everything, from our jobs to our spouses to our houses to our cars, all our assorted toys. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this at the end of a litany of people choosing behavior that's contrary to Scripture. They say, well, God wants me to be happy. That's a true statement. He wants them to be full of joy and love. But happiness is not the goal. It's a byproduct of following Christ and believing Christ is enough. Here's the third lesson. We can choose to live a life free from the pursuit of getting. You know how I worded that? We can choose that. And just like any training that we do, if you're going to train to run a marathon, you run the first mile, it will hurt. <laughs> but then you learn to run two and three and four and five and 10 and 15. And once you get good enough, you can run the 26. We forget that about training. And training to be content, free from the pursuit of getting, it'll hurt at first. Matthew 6. I want to read this. Just listen to it. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And you note it's the seeking after these things that puts us into poverty. You understand that? We put ourselves into poverty because we think whatever we have is not enough. 
For the Gentiles seeking after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, the problem with seeking to get is it leads to worry. And it's just not about stuff. We worry about what people think, and we worry about what people might say, and we worry about what people might take. Do you understand this whole getting thing, whether it's a reputation or anything, puts us in a condition where Christ is not enough. So what drives your heart? Let me be honest about that. When you look at your condition of your heart, I mean, is it the political situation, and are you in anxiety over that? Is it money? And what you think is fair and just? What fears do you have? What, where are you making excuses for life? What I'm trying to say is that so many other things drive us rather than Christ. So many things. Let me reread 634 from the message. It's a paraphrase. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. I mean, that's my heart for GBC. My heart is that when his spirit says move, we move. We don't check our policies and programs. My heart is for the transformation of people because you want to end violence out in the world? Introduce them to Jesus. You want to end poverty? Introduce them to Jesus because once Jesus takes over their heart, they begin to generously give. All these solutions in our world that we are putting out there in political situations cannot be solved in human realm alone. We need Jesus. Jesus said, where your heart is, there will also be your treasure. Now, I, I always find it interesting how Scripture is put together. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 13. Just listen to it. Hebrews 13 is first aces, first eight verses, but you can go home and reread it, but listen to what it says. The author writes, let brotherly love continue. Then he talks about some practical aspects of that. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I don't know if we believe that anymore today, that there's kind of angels unaware among us, but, you know, Scripture talks about that. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And again, the verse doesn't say whether or not they deserve to be there or not. It just says, this is what brotherly love looks like. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, in our culture today, we don't believe that. Now, let's be honest, even in the Christian world, we just don't believe that. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's interesting. We quote, again, I will never leave nor forsake you. But we pulled out a context. Context is, listen, no matter what comes your way, no matter how much you make or don't make, be content. And I'm there with you. See, the dilemma is most of us don't like man existence. You know what man existence is? Go back to the Old Testament. And the people complained about food. So God gave literally a couple million people manna. And the Hebrew word is what is it. So we really don't know what it is. But they woke up and they were allowed to accumulate the manna just enough for one day. And only one day. And if they tried to get more, what happened? They woke up and it was rotten the next day. Except for the Sabbath. They were allowed to collect the stuff and somehow it knew that on Friday evening they can get a double dose and it wouldn't get go rotten the next day. But we do not like what is called day-to-day living, that you wake up, you have no idea where it's going to come except for the hand of God. I mean, that's what it means that I will never leave you nor forsake you. In verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I, I know a lot of people and I will confess, too, that I get very frustrated at where America is today. Let me say two things about that. The first is that you and I have to take responsibility for this because it happened on our watch. In short, we were not practicing great are you, Lord. We didn't believe that Christ was enough. And our lack of contentment and our pursuit of power and wealth Well, we are now almost $20 trillion in debt, and our kids are going to pay for our immorality. So we got to own up. This happened on our watch. Two, we need to adopt what I call a no-fear kingdom from here on out. we got to live the kingdom of God. we got to live greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When they talk about that, they're talking about my Jesus. And Jesus says, perfect love casts out what? Fear. We do not have to fear what situations we face. Now, again, we, there's the human emotion fear, okay? But what it's saying is fear does not control your choice. You make the choice in spite of being afraid. It's about time. It's just about time that we have to use the whole wrestling world analogy, a smackdown of holiness and righteousness. We got to wrestle like Jacob did in the wilderness. And we got to hang on for our life. Do you have any idea what an incredible witness we would be today if we had a spirit and life of contentment? Can you imagine what that would teach to the world that is so discontent with everything? You've heard me say that we just live in a day of perpetually being offended. Why? Because people think they're entitled, they deserve, and no one likes what's happening here. And we are so blessed compared to other countries. In Hebrews 13.8, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, He doesn't change. And so the great things he did, we get to do, and greater things. 
that's a promise for all of us that we can be light in the midst of darkness. And light shines brightest in the darkest time. We need to learn to pray for the right things. So often we're solely locked just into physical needs. And I'm not saying those are not important. They are. But we are spiritual beings who happen to have physical bodies. And we need to pray that God will use us to bless, to bring people to Christ. We have to pray for contentment and humility. We've got to pray and bow our knee to the audience of one. Going back in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this verse. I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 3. And it should be on the screen there. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We have been distracted, people. And we've been distracted by our idols. Then he says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You know, there's a difference between rejecting and neglecting. You know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Disciples, we are called to be learners and followers of Jesus. And it's about time, as a church, we stop neglecting this great salvation. Stop neglecting this great are you, Lord. Stop neglecting the possibility that out of a heart of contentment that Christ is enough that we can do even greater things than he did when he walked among earth. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close with a song, but before that, we're going to pray a prayer of, a prayer for content to this together. So I want you to pray this with me. And I'm going to turn to the screen so I don't read on. Let's pray together. Father, far too many live in a state of discontent where we find ourselves loving things and using people. It distorts our priorities and gives us temporary excitement with things, but leaves us with long-term dissatisfaction in ourselves and our relationships. Help us to enjoy material things, but to place a higher value on greater pursuits such as growing friendships, solid marriage relations, growing godly character, giving without receiving, and other worldly goals. We will be content as we rejoice in the fact that whether we are in want or whether we have plenty, you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. What a treasured promise for the believer of both in times of need and in times of prosperity. We are content with what we realize our all-sufficiency is in you. Lord, you will meet all our needs according to your riches and glory. Amen.